If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you go to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament? Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start out in Isaiah 7, but we'll be primarily in Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, maybe have one on your phone or or maybe you don't own a hard copy, um, in the back of the church on the brown table back there, there's free Bibles. Love for you to grab one on your way out this morning, and you can own a copy of God's Word that way. But all the verses that we'll be talking about this morning will be up on the screen, so you can see them there as well. Before we jump into the passage, um, I'd love to update you on the building and what's going on with our new building project. If you're new to New Hope, we've been building a building for the church, and trying to make sure there's enough room for the churches that continues to grow. So out on East Saginaw Highway between the Myers that's in Bath and the Costco that was built a little closer to East Lansing is a 14-acre piece of property. And that's where the church is building its new building. Derek went out with his drone in the last couple of weeks and captured some imagery in the last few days. So we're going to let this video play so you can follow along and you can watch and see exactly what's going on with the project. That white stuff you see is called snow. Okay, got that part down, but you're going to see some other white stuff. On the roof of the building over in the far side where the children's wing is at is some styrofoam blocks that's built up. I'll explain that in just a minute. This superstructure of steel, maybe you can see it a little bit better on the smaller screens, but what you're looking at there is the auditorium area and the crane that sits next to the building, and you'll see it in another shot on the other side, has actually been removed now because all the steel is now in place as of today. The guys were out there yesterday putting this decking on the top of the building. And you're looking straight down at the auditorium now and the atrium off to the side. So that brick wall right there that's right in the front of the screen, that's actually the office area. And flying over the top of the auditorium towards the children's wing. Once that insulation is on, they'll put a rubber seal coat over the top of that. So now you're inside the auditorium area and be looking, swinging around and looking towards the platform where that will be. Be praying for the safety of the guys as they continue to work out there, especially in this cold weather. They're really looking forward to getting the building closed in so they can keep the snow from coming down on their head. It's really amazing to see what has happened in such a short span of time. And if you haven't driven by it recently, I I would encourage you to take some time and do that. Just drive past and and see the structure from the road. Get a feel for what everybody else is seeing as they drive to work every day as they're going up and down the highway. Well, this is in a follow-up to a letter that we sent out this last Thursday. It may not have arrived at your home yet or not. Perhaps you're familiar with what I'm about to share with you, but we wanted to give an update also on the finances of where things are at. And you might not know this, but when we launched the Building Campaign Fund two years ago this month, um, so 24 months ago, we suggested what the cost of the building would be. And as a result of that, $5.1 million was committed to the project. So of the $5.1 million in pledges that was committed, at this point in time, as of today, already almost $4.6 million has already arrived in cash. Is that not amazing? That's fantastic. So of the gifts that have been given, that means there's about $500,000 or $600,000 roughly to go, uh, left to go to meet the pledges that were committed. The cost of the project, however, is around 6.4, 6.5, something like that. We, we knew what the cost of the building would be, the structure itself. What we didn't know would be the cost of the FF&E. And FF&E is fixtures, furnishings, and equipment. The combined cost of the building and the fixtures and furnishings equipment is around 6.4 to 6.5. So that means of the 5.1 that's been committed and the 6.4 or 6.5, there's roughly a $1.4 million gap. 
But God's brought us this far, so we believe He can finish that gap, doesn't it, Candy Church? He can finish that. So we would love, if it's possible, to move into that new facility completely debt-free. That would be phenomenal, wouldn't it? That'd just be an incredible thing to praise God about. So here's what I'm challenging you, and be praying about this. A lot of new people are coming into New Hope. A lot of new people have become part of the church since we launched the building campaign. Perhaps those individuals want to jump in and help pay for the cost. Maybe somebody here is already committed to it, but you would like to increase your commitment. That'd be fantastic. Or maybe you're doing some end-of-the-year giving. But we believe that there's a day coming when I can stand before you and say, you know what, guys? The building's completely paid for. That would just be fantastic. So we'll look forward to that day. How good of our God to bring us to this point already. And we can look at that structure and say, wow, we're paying for that thing in cash as we go because each of the building bills that have been coming in, we've been writing checks to go back out and not borrowing money to pay for it. So I want to pray with you about that and about Isaiah 9-6 and how specifically this is going to speak to your life this morning and how God wants you to use it throughout the next few weeks ahead as you move towards Christmas. Would you pray with me about that? Let's pray together. Father, we turn our attention to your word, and your word is glorious. It's fantastic because it's alive, and it, it sharpens our mind. You say it's active, which we know means it does things. And so as we read it this morning, Father, we invite you to to do things with your word. Move us to action. Our mind turns towards what you've already done in the way of evidencing yourself and bringing money in for this building project because it's all about bringing glory to yourself and, and expanding your kingdom and bringing new people into the kingdom. Father, as you continue to grow us and, and expand what you're doing through New Hope, we invite that you would continue to bring glory to yourself both through the expansion of the church and the dedication we give to studying your word. So, Father, we ask that you would do that through us right now, that you would bring glory to yourself as we dedicate ourselves to understanding how you want us to understand who you are to us. We've declared it in truth in song this morning. We've used the beauty of music to glorify you. And now we ask that you turn our attention to your word and give us a focus, Father. Keep us from distraction. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Isaiah chapter 7, I told you we'd start there. In Isaiah 7, God makes a fantastic promise. It it boggles the mind, actually, when you process the things that he committed to. I'm going to ask Stefan to put this verse up on the screen because I want you to process it in a way different than the way that perhaps you've looked at it in the past. Isaiah 7.14. Look at it very closely with me. Isaiah is saying, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, a sign is being fulfilled as a follow-up to the promise, a promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that one day He was going to send a deliverer, one who would rescue the planet if people would only respond to it. So God makes a massive promise in Isaiah chapter 7. He says, as a follow-up to that promise, here's a sign for you, a virgin is going to be with child. A virgin is going to have a baby. Now, while having a baby is always a special thing, it's not all that rare. It happens all the time on this planet. But a virgin having a baby, well, that's never happened before, and it's never happened since. So how do we get our minds around that? How exactly does that work, you might be thinking this morning? Science can't explain it, to which God would say, exactly. You can't explain it because it requires me to be involved. 
Now, we're going to set the issue of a virgin having a baby aside, especially as we get into it in the next couple weeks. But it speaks into this issue this morning. Go with me onto the screen and look at the full verse, 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, forgive the pun, if you will, but that's an incredibly pregnant verse, isn't it? Some of you are so slow on that. Isn't it just full of expectancy, right? There's incredible hope there. There's hope in what Isaiah is saying. There's a sign, a sign that God's giving to you, the clear sense of wonder. So let's leave the issue of the virgin birth aside, but leave ourselves with the wonder in our mind of what in the world is that? Can you imagine the first person to read what Isaiah wrote down, that a virgin's going to have a baby? But it's the last part of the verse that we need to drill down into for now. Last week, we asked and addressed the question, who is Jesus to you? Jesus asked it himself. He asked it of the disciples. He, he said, who do people say that I am? And then he turned to the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And I asked you the question, who is Jesus to you? These weeks before you, leading up to Christmas, these are intended to help you to address the specifics of that question. Who is Jesus? And how should that impact your life? We might say, especially for a believer beyond salvation, how should that reality impact your life? And if, if you're not a believer yet, maybe you're watching online and you're not a believer in Jesus yet, how should the reality of who Jesus is impact your life? We're going to address that this morning. I want you to look again at verse 14, especially that last part. She will call his name Emmanuel. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Emmanuel is the Hebrew word for God with us. So she will call him God with us. We would have to agree that for God to take up residence on this planet for any length of time, especially in the form of man, requires a condescension of God on a scale unimaginable to the human mind. Would you not agree with that? For God to leave the throne of glory, to come here is one thing. To come here and to become man, to put on flesh, he willingly leaves the throne? Well, that's exactly what the Bible tells us happened. It's precisely what the Bible records, and that his arrival would incorporate some unique identifying characteristics, which would be the exclusive territory of God himself, and that's what Isaiah records in chapter 9. So if you're in chapter 7, flip over to chapter 9 now, especially verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Do you notice right away that the names that are given to this child can only be true of God himself? Those things cannot be said of any other person. No other individual born on this planet can claim those titles. They can only be true of God. So we need to understand what in the world is Isaiah writing here. And it's written 700 years before Jesus is born. 
Well, the first thing we want to drill down into is the fact that he said his name shall be called. And if you look in your notes this morning, and I would really encourage you to look at your notes if you got them when you came in the door, there's, there's four Hebrew words. No Greek language this morning, giving you a break on that. I'm going to teach you Hebrew, all right? So four Hebrew words, and the first one I want you to see is this one, Shammai, because that's the word name. And Shammai, you see this on the screen, it's not just a position, that's important, it's not just an appellation, which means an indication of the person's individuality. You, you have that. You have a first name and you have a last name. But in the Hebrew language, it goes even further than that. It says by implication, there's honor that's associated with it, there's authority, there's character, but here's what it builds to. It builds to the fame of that one, to the renown of that one. So his renown will be... That's the way Isaiah is writing it. His fame will be, and he will be called. So that's the second Hebrew word I want you to see is the word kwara. So you look at, look at that and look at how these two work together. This, this calling out, his, his fame will be, call him out. Now, this is not like Isaiah is saying to Mary, hey, Mary, go outside and tell wonderful counselor to come inside for supper. Okay, that, that's not what he's saying. He said, there's something remarkable about this individual. People will cry out to him because his renown will be, do you see the last part of the definition? It's got the exact same word used again. His renown will be renown. His renown will be renowned. His fame will be wonderful counselor. And so Isaiah, when he writes these details of this arrival, this giving to us of this one born of a virgin, he's urging the readers to remember. You in 2018, myself included, he wants us to remember this one, this Messiah, is like no one else. No one who's been born before, no one who's been born afterwards, and he's coming to establish a final, decisive kingdom. So to understand why Isaiah writes the way that he does, we need some context. We need some background. What's going on in his world that causes him to write this at this time, besides the fact that God moved in his spirit this way? Well, understand he writes in a period of time that you would call tumultuous. The Assyrian Empire is on the move. And I don't know what you know about Assyria, but when you think of the Babylonian Empire, double that when you think of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was massive in its size and its scope and its power, and it's sweeping across the Middle East as Isaiah writes this. The Assyrians are on the march, and they've already conquered Syria to the north, and they've taken over what we know today as Turkey, and they're moving through the Middle East, and Israel is in their sights, and they're about to conquer and come against Israel. So Israel finds himself under siege and because of this crisis, there's a darkness and there's a heavy gloom in the spirit of the people who live in Israel. They're characterized by that. So Isaiah in chapter 7 through chapter 9 paints a very vivid picture of the boots marching across his nation and the garments of the soldiers soaked in blood of the dead people who are scattered all over the planet. This vast enemy is swarming the land. And Isaiah recognizes there's a darkness here. And in the midst of the invasion, he writes of a beam of light, a shaft, a reminder of God's promise, his ancient promise, the eternal promise made all the way back in Genesis 3. 
the ultimate rescue is spoken of again here. And the emphasis that he's making is on the need to have faith in God's capacity to rescue. Do you believe in God's capacity to rescue this morning, New Hope? Is he faithful? Is he faithful to rescue, especially in the midst of trauma? That's why Isaiah is writing in the midst of what he's writing in here. So we need to break this down a little bit further so we really understand the context of how he's writing this, not just the history, but the way that he's writing this. When he says this first title, that he's going to be a wonderful counselor. Now, I want to go back into Isaiah 9, 6 with you and, and just take on this first part. And if you think we've been going slow through Romans, just hold on. Look at what we're going to do now. Just the word for, okay? For. How do I understand this? Well, the word for is huge. And it's very, very important in the way that it's being used here. Not just of the context of the history, but for this particular reason. Now, if you're a student of English literature and you've gone to writing class and you're probably starting to think of eighth grade writing class right now when I use the word conjunction. Do you remember what a conjunction is? Well, you're looking at it. That's a conjunction, right? Four is a conjunction. But it's not just because it's a conjunction here. There's a reason he's putting it in. He has to clarify. There's a reason for this conjunction because there's a promise that's about to be made, a promise of such magnitude, it has to have a cause. You're looking at the cause. The cause is God. For God is going to bring a child. The cause is that God is about to take action. The Lord himself is going to intervene. And so Isaiah says, for for God's on the move, so for God is bringing about this child. See, that puts the word child in incredible emphasis. For means God is bringing about this child, and he's unlike any other that has ever been known. Let's go forward, Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us. Now, if you lived in the ancient world and you understood Assyria or you understood Babylon, you would know certain things take place in the throne room of the king every time someone comes into his presence. Every time someone enters the king's chamber, they would have a responsibility to bow down before the king, and as a result of wanting to keep their head, they would begin launching all kinds of compliments towards the king, even things that were completely untrue, like, you're like a god, no one's like you, you're eternal in your power and your majesty. Well, it was all just flattery because they're looking to get things from the king, including keeping their life. Well, that's the ancient Middle East, but that's not this case. This is Judah. This is a Hebrew prophet. This is Isaiah. And if the Hebrew prophets were known for anything, it wasn't for speaking flattery. It was for speaking the truth. And Isaiah is writing the truth here. Old Testament prophets didn't need to heap on flattery, and they didn't hesitate to speak the truth. And so Isaiah is speaking the truth when he declares, a child's going to be born to us. Now, who would be thinking of a child rescuing people? They'd be thinking of a king with mighty power who's great on his throne. But Isaiah says, no, this one's going to be a child, a child born to us. And what's he highlighting there for you? Well, he's highlighting the reality that this one is going to be born of humanity. A child will be born of a virgin. The fact that he's highlighting this means Jesus is going to be a human, both fully God and fully man, both the son of a virgin girl living in the Middle East and the son of Almighty God. 
Why start out with that? What significance does that have to you in 2018? Well, that he was one of us and is means he knows what we face every day, right? He knows what we're going through. Can I remind you of what the book of Hebrews says? Just in case that's not popping in your mind, look with me on the screen. Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Why, writer of Hebrews? Well, verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If that's not enough for you, go with me to Hebrews 4.15. It says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet look at how magnificent this is, yet without sin. Tempted like we are, tried like we are, struggled like we are, but without any sin because he's completely perfect. That means for you today, the same thing it meant for Isaiah when he's writing the 700 years before Jesus, looking forward. It means in 2018, there is no temptation, there's no struggle, no problem that you face right now that Jesus does not understand. Can you say amen to that? It's true. It's true. He knows everything you're going through. No hardship, no difficulty for which he cannot provide strength for you. Let's leave that part alone and move forward into verse 6. It says this, not just a child, but Isaiah 9, 6 also says, a son will be given to us. So not only a child born to humanity, a child of humanity, but a son. Now, why is that significant? Because when you begin to think of this Hebrew ancient prophet writing, and he's saying, a son born to us, there's a little bit of pride going on. There's a degree of confidence going on with this Hebrew writer who understands how the genealogy works within the Hebrew people from a son to a son to a son, especially one who's in the line of the Davidic dynasty, meaning King David. So this son, born of a genealogy of a rich history of the one nation on this entire planet with whom God had earlier established a covenant, Abraham, I'm going to make you a light to the entire nation, to the world. All the world will turn to me because of you. I'm going to make you favored, Abraham, and all your people will produce an offspring. This one will become a light to the world. All the nations will turn to me. So Isaiah writes, a son born to us. So it's not just a child, it's not just a baby, but it's a son. And so that makes sense why Luke 2.11 records when the angel showed up and began speaking to the shepherds that night. Something special has been done for you. Look with me on the screen, church. Luke 2.11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for, for who, church? For, for you, for you, for all people. There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so Jesus echoes this exact same thing in one of the most beloved verses of not just the church, but of the Bible, of the Word of God. John 3.16, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only, his only begotten Son, gave to us. See, this one who's coming is not only going to rule, not only over God's people, as according to Scripture in Micah, he's going to rule over all the earth. Let me remind you of what Zechariah wrote. 
Chapter 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. He's speaking of the second coming of the eventual kingdom here on earth. Isaiah continues to write. He doesn't just stop there. He begins talking about government. He says in Isaiah 9, 6, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Uh, figuratively, what Isaiah is writing about here is the robe that's worn by a king. And I don't know if you knew this, but kings didn't always wear their robes. They would take them off and put them on. When they went up on the throne and they took on the responsibilities of the government, they wore the robe of the government because the robe represented the weight of the responsibility. So when they got down off the throne and would go outside to mow the lawn or get pizza, the robe wasn't on them, right? They, they put on the robe when they sit on the throne because they're governing. And, and the weight comes with that, the weight of the government. In Isaiah's day, Judah's leaders were incredibly incompetent. They were not good leaders. They made poor decisions. And yet Isaiah says this one, he will rule with governing authority and it will rest on his shoulders. Now I ask you this question, if the government of the world, if the weight of that responsibility rests on his shoulders, should we not be willing to have it there? And you might be wondering why I'm asking that. Let me phrase it another way. If the weight of the world rests on his shoulders and we hold back from letting him be Lord, how does that work? How can we hold him as the source of all peace unless we first yield to him as Lord of our lives? Because he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, King of kings, Lord of lords. How can we let him be Lord over all the government and not trust him with our daily issues? If Jesus is able to shoulder the weight of the world, can he not bear your life issues also? Because he says, bring it to me. Bring, bring it to me. I can, I can take it. Now, let me contrast this for you with a very real image. In our country, in the United States of America, we understand our government operates with a legislative branch and a judicial branch and an executive branch. And the reason it's designed that way is so that the weight, the responsibility won't rest on any one unity, one, one entity that one group or one person wouldn't carry the weight of it all. So it's spread out so that multiple individuals have that weight. But Jesus, he rules alone. The supremacy of all authority rests with him because he's king of kings and lord of lords. That's a good place to say amen, church. And that, that, that's, a, that's a good place if you ever want to say it. He's king. He's lord. And so all authority has been given to him. So catch this. Politicians, they're going to continue to posture. And, and armies, they're going to continue to maneuver. And nations, they're going to continue to threaten. But Jesus sits on his throne in absolute authority. So Isaiah writes, the government, it rests on his shoulders. So I'm saying to you, church, if he can handle that, he can handle the cares of your life. So in response to that, Isaiah writes the next part, which is the last part for us today. 
Isaiah 9, 6, and his fame, and his renown, and his shameh. His renown shall be renowned, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now, the creator of all that is, he made you, and he made the nebula in outer space. The creator of all that is could title himself by any title, and yet for the first title he chooses to reveal himself here in Isaiah 9 is to say, I'm the wonderful counselor. Do you think there's significance to that? Do you think there's a reason why when he could have chosen anything else, he chooses to let you know first and foremost, he's a wonderful counselor? Here's why. He's omniscient. He knows what you need to know before you understand him as mighty God, before you understand him as everlasting father, before you understand him as prince of peace. You need to know what you're about to see as a wonderful counselor. And notice this very well. He's not simply a good counselor. And we could say that about humans here on earth. There's good counselors that we know. I know very good counselors like Gary. He's not simply a good counselor. He's not simply a wise counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. And here's why I emphasize that. Because of the word that Isaiah chooses. The other Hebrew word in your notes, pella. This particular word means miraculous, astonishing, something that goes beyond human experience, beyond comprehension according to the definition. And you need to know that this word is much weightier than our use of it in 2018. Here's how we would use the word wonderful. You might today, later today, sit down to a really nice piece of apple pie. And, and maybe somebody will scoop a piece of ice cream onto that, and you might go, wow, that is a wonderful piece of apple pie. Well, that's probably true, but that cheapens the word, at least biblically, because it means something much weightier than the way that we use it in our language. Jesus is wonderful in a way that absolutely boggles the mind. So according to Isaiah, it's beyond comprehension, literally incomprehensible. And here's how you can frame it this way. Just go back with me a few books in the Bible. You don't have to turn there. But Judges 13. Judges 13 records a conversation between a man and an angel. Uh, a man is about to be born. His name is Samson, and he's going to be known as a mighty warrior, powerful individual, supernaturally strong. But before he's born, Samson's dad, his name is Manoah, has a conversation with an angel of the Lord, Judges 13 records. When the angel of the Lord shows up, Manoah realizes he's talking to somebody who's spectacular and he can't quite get his mind around it, so the only thing he can really get out of his mouth is, what is your name? Now, the angel of the Lord in Judges 13 responds this way, why do you ask my name? seeing that it is wonderful, Pella. In other words, seeing that it's beyond comprehension. This is a paraphrase for it. Why would you ask, seeing you can't comprehend it? That's the way this is used here when it's spoken of as wonderful. In the same way, the God-man, Jesus, born of a virgin, is Pella, a phenomenon beyond human origin. 
beyond all natural occurrence. No one can get their mind around this. And so while physically on this planet, Jesus astonished people. Would you agree with that? People were astonished by him, beginning with the circumstances around his virgin birth. But let's just go beyond that. He is wonderful in his capacity to heal. Look with me on the screen. I'll give you a reminder of this from Matthew 4.23. Maybe you've read this so many times you've just seen it callously, but look at Matthew 4.23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, check this, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. We live in 2018, and the, the modern science available to us is absolutely amazing. But we can't even figure out how to solve the problem of the common cold, right? We can't heal that. Jesus is healing diseases, sicknesses, just by the touch or by the command. And people were astonished by it. And rightly so, they should be, because He's wonderful. He's wonderful in His perfect life. We just looked at that in Hebrews. He's without sin. He identifies us with us in everything without sin. All the temptation we know without sin. Extraordinary in His death. Inexplicable in His resurrection. Astonishing beyond human explanation. So logically, His presence would provoke, and I mean this in a good way, his presence would provoke wonder. No wonderful. Isaiah writes, he's called the God of wonders. So logically, when you take wonderful and you combine it with counselor, you're going to get something stupendous. Because God says in Proverbs 8:14, counsel is mine. You might want to write this verse down, maybe share it with some friends who are struggling to understand how God can relate to them. He says, counsel is mine. I am sound wisdom. I am understanding. And he doesn't just mean I understand you. He means I'm the definition of understanding. It's who I am. I am that. So the last Hebrew word, the final one for this morning is this one, yawats. And it means exactly what you think it would mean when you think of counsel to guide somebody, to give them sound advice, to counsel them well. And God says, that's, that's who I am. So because Jesus is God, the wisdom that He offers you flows out of omnipotence. His counsel brings God's wisdom for any believer, and I emphasize believer, and you'll see why I emphasize that in just a minute. His counsel brings wisdom for any believer who's willing to ask. So wonderful counselor combines this thought. Extraordinary wisdom. And we need to see how that's fleshed out in Jesus being here on this planet. So Isaiah writes, this one, he's going to exhibit miraculous actions of God. When it comes to teaching, people will be amazed by him. So while physically on this planet... He astonished people. Here's a reminder for you. Look with me on the screen. Mark 1.22. They were amazed at his teaching. Why, Mark? Because he didn't teach like people. He didn't teach like the scribes. He didn't teach like the Pharisees. His wisdom went beyond everything they could put definition to. So they were astonished by his teaching. 
So the Messiah is going to be wonderful with wisdom. And when it comes to speaking into your life, no one is ever going to go after him for counsel and say, well, that was in vain. What a waste of my time. No one's going to ever ask God for wisdom and say, man, that was bad advice. Why why did you tell me to do that? No one's ever going to have that feeling after they go to God for counsel. Let me ask you just to ponder this. Can you think of any situation in which Jesus said the wrong thing or put his foot in his mouth or didn't know what to say? There are those who are around him, his followers, who did that all the time. Peter's known for foot-in-the-mouth disease, right? He's constantly seeming like he's saying the wrong thing. But Jesus always said the right thing. He always knew what to say, and no one ever regretted to going for him to him for counsel. Here's why I relate to that. Because I have known personally the frustration of occasionally having to say to someone, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just... I'm out of my depth here. Your situation is beyond me. I'm, I might need to study up on that and get back to you. I've known the frustration of doing that. And don't look at me that way. You've done that too, right? right? We, we've all faced that situation where we just go, I, I, I don't know what to say in this situation. But you're never going to find that with Jesus He's he's never going to be lacking for an answer to satisfy your soul. So hear this, church. There's no problem for which Jesus needs to study up on, right? And he's never going to refer you out to another professional's office. And he's never going to say to you, I wonder if your insurance actually covers the fee I'm about to charge you. See, he's fee-free, isn't he? He's, He's never going to do that to you. And I'm not disparaging planet Earth counselors. I'm just saying, this one is amazing, So he's not the angry counselor, he's not the grumpy counselor, he's not the disconnected counselor, he's the wonderful counselor. And that means this title, this this one that belongs to him, when it's applied to your life, it's like nothing else because it is supernaturally insightful. Here's how I want to give you a handle to carry this out the door this morning. Because Jesus knew you would be here on this planet... He knows you better than anyone. Scripture says all things were made by him and through him and for him and to him. And there isn't anything that was made that was not made by him. So he knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb, before you were a twinkle in your mama's eye. And you might be thinking right now, no one knows me like my mama. No one knows me like my daddy. And you might be right to some degree, but I will tell you right now, no one, even your mom or your dad, knows you like Jesus. He can see into your heart, and your mom and dad can't do that. He he knows what makes you tick. And if you're not a believer this morning, I just want to encourage you to hear this. He can even see the dark, dark things in your heart, and he knows how to lead you out to the light, and that's what he specializes in. Amen, New Hope? That's what he's best at. He knows how to lead you out. He's the only one that can do that. So the counsel he offers you is given in light of the reality, the absolute understanding of all things belong to him. John records that. John chapter 2, verse 25. One last verse for you. He did not need any testimony about mankind. 
for he knew what was in each person. So Jesus knows exactly what you're going through this morning. He always knows what you're going through. How do I explain that? I can't. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Here's the truth, though, that you've got to go out the door with this morning. You cannot get this wonderful counsel from any other source. It's not available from anyone else. So three things for you. That means you cannot call him wonderful counselor if you do not embrace his wisdom for your eternal salvation. In other words, you've got to be in relationship with him first. If you want his wisdom for your family or for your finances, or your career, or for your future, or for anything, you got to have the relationship first. And if Jesus is your wonderful counselor, you need to know this. The counsel isn't going to come to you audibly. I'm not suggesting you're going to be walking down the street and you're going to hear a voice from heaven. I'm suggesting to you that God has already spoken thoroughly and completely. It's called the Word of God. He's spoken through the Bible. And he says, it will thoroughly equip you for everything you need to know. He says that about himself. My word is complete, Genesis to Revelation. I've got all the information that you need, and I will speak to you through it. But here's the way he also speaks. He speaks through his own people. He speaks through the activity of people who are rightly dividing the word of God in church. So you've got to be involved with brothers and sisters in Christ in church. If you want God's wisdom, get into his word, dig into his word. Discern the mind of Christ by talking to brothers and sisters in Christ so God can speak to you through his word and through his people and get good counsel that way. Here's the third thing. This wonderful counsel that he offers, this perfect counsel, it's available to you 24-7. Is that not amazing? And in light of that reality, it boggles my mind to think, why don't we go to him more often? Because maybe we think he's not interested He says, no, you come to me. Bring it to me. He said, his spirit is alive and well in us, and I'll give you counsel anytime you want it. So I end with this, his own words from Matthew 11, 28, and maybe you've never looked at it in this way, but this is Jesus saying to you, Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Could you use rest this morning? We don't have to do a show of hands, but I bet that's true of most of us in this auditorium. Like, wow, I could really use a breather. He's talking about soul rest. Physical rest for your body, that starts with soul rest because your body can't shut down if your mind's not resting first. So he says, you come to me and I'll give you what you need. I'm going to pray for you as you take on this week this way. This reality is that you're going to be able to speak into the lives of other people who are perhaps just as tired as you. Or perhaps they don't know the peace that you know. Perhaps they don't know about this wisdom. And I would hope that you would take your notes, take the things that you've learned, bring it to memory, and ask God to use you this week to speak into the lives of others. Let's pray that way, church. Father, by the the hundreds of people represented in our church, the replication of relationships, 
just goes without bounds. We, we each know people within our social circle, and every one of those individuals is precious to you. Every life is valuable to you. And you use us to be your instruments on this planet, so speak to us, Father, first, so that we might be better equipped to speak to others. I ask right now that your Holy Spirit, who's alive and active in this moment, we, we feel your presence, God, that you've spoken through your word, strengthen us by what we've just studied, that we might strengthen others. Father, cause us to walk more confidently and more boldly, and yes, even more proudly, that we belong to the King of Kings, and to speak, speak confidently about that, even in settings where it might be awkward. Give us the confidence to encourage others. God, as we take on this afternoon, we take on tomorrow, we've got seven days in front of us before we learn about what a mighty God you are. Let us rest with the reality that you are a wonderful counselor. And we see it in a new way this morning. And we praise you for it. We thank you for the reality in Jesus, our Savior, whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.